So this past weekend, my friend was over here. She was watching Max taking care of the cats. First off, 90% sure she's going to kidnap him. Um, I mean, he's pretty wonderful. He's kind of perfect. But she was like driving him around in the car. And she was like, hmm, I wonder if he'll react to hearing Tyler's voice. So she started playing the podcast. Did not react one bit. (laughs) He does not care. Well, he's over it. He's over it. He refuses to be in the room while we record, as does Charlie. And so he's like, dude, this is the last thing I want to listen to. Like, put on some Rihanna, please. And thank you. True. Also, she took Max over to her mom's house. And I guess one of her like little brother's friends was over and overheard him be like, who's the fat ass? Referring to Max, who is not fat. He's chonky. But her mom was like, no, you're not allowed in my house anymore. To like her own kid? No, to her kid's friend. Oh, oh. (laughs) And kicked him out for calling Max a fat ass. And I'm like, I love love you. You are (laughs) amazing. And another reason why I'm like, are y'all going to kidnap Max? They're plotting. They're like, let's see if he really likes it here. Let's show him a good time. Speaking of showing him a good time, Charlie is on vacation right now at uh, Mimi's. And um, that's just, that's our mom. And I'm gonna, I've got to travel for work this week. And it's just easier to take him there. He, he's one of those dogs that has such severe anxiety, that if I have someone come over and check on him, he like refuses to go out with them, he will not let them put on his harness to take him outside to go to the bathroom. Like, he won't really move. He is so damn picky. He is very picky. So he's just hanging out there, and I have, like, a couple nights before I leave, and um, it feels really weird and empty, and I need him Fair. back. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally that person that's like, I love to travel, but also I hate leaving my dog. Uh, fair. But hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler, and we, our pets are our children. We just love Sorry. our dogs and our cats, and that's the way it should be. Yes. Yeah. Looking forward to this episode. I mean, like, yes and no. You know what I mean. Y- yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm in the same boat. I'm like, this will be fun, but fun is not the right word. It's hard to, like, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's hard to, like, find the right adjectives because it's always like, oh, awesome. We're going to record tonight. Like, I'm looking forward to that. And then I spend hours in research and I'm like, okay, all right. How do I frame this up? How do I frame this up? It's horrible and awful, but um, how am I going to talk about this? So the one that I found today was pretty interesting, I I will say. Mine's just all kinds of fucked up, as per (laughs) usual. As per usual. Well, um, just want to do a quick shout out to Patreon. If you haven't, please go over and check it out. We've got quite a few murder minis over there, like 40 of them or something, and... um, they're really fun. There's also a great like community of people that's built over there on Patreon. You guys comment on things, ask us questions. And um, yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about what you can get over there, all the extra content, maybe direct in a, an episode, go check it out and check out the tiers. Also, one thing I want to like plug again, don't forget we have our blood and wine store. Um, I just like brought my tote out again and started reusing it. And I freaking love that thing. Yeah, I kind of want to get a tote too. You should. I love it. For me, it's my favorite thing. That and like the Heather Gray t-shirt. Two favorite things at our store. Heather Gray t-shirt is my favorite. So like leaps and bounds. It is, I think, one of my softest shirts I own. Love it. Also, make sure if you haven't to subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to us spotify apple podcast all the things if you subscribe all the uh, episodes will be like downloaded or they'll be put in your queue right when they release so you never have to worry about missing one and you get to listen to them right when they come out yes be sure to do it so this week's topic i'm just going to jump right in do it. We are, we've been doing this series um, every few weeks. We've covered the 60s and the 70s, and now um, it's time for murders in the 1980s. And the 1980s were their own special kind of hell when it comes to crime. 
Also yeah. a really fun decade, lots of amazing music, lots of really fun stuff that happened in the 80s, great movies that came out. I was born just saying it was a great decade, but it was also a really fucked up decade. And murders spiked in the 80s higher than ever before. And I think since then, we've never reached like that high of a spike. And yeah. this is a year when you've got some of these really fucked up serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer is doing his thing. The Green River Killer is doing his thing. I mean, uh, Richard Ramirez, literally the list goes on and on. And if you Google murders from the 1980s, you find all these lists that are like top serial killers that are the worst in the absolute fucking world. And you're like, oh, great. Glad all that happened in the fucking 80s. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the 80s were crazy. It is, I mean, on one hand, there, it's my fashion, like ideal 1987 men's fashion. Mm. But on the other hand, everyone was a murderer. Literally so, everyone. You know. Like, it was like three out of five people were murderers. Not really. I made that statistic up. But that's what it feels like. <laughs> Honestly, kinda. We are, we're gonna, like I said, dive into this special decade of hell in this episode. Oh, God. Well, I know first, uh, I'm gonna need some wine, and I know you will, so. When do I not need wine? Same. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so, let's hop into that. What wine did you pick for this week? Today I picked one that, I'm going to be frank, I'm 97% sure we've never done it. I looked back and couldn't find it, but the 3% of me is just not sure because I'm shocked if we haven't. Really? What wine? Well, it's one that I've mentioned a lot. Neither of us really drink it, but we talk about it quite a bit, and it's the 2017 Robert Mondavi Private Selection Cabernet Sauvignon from California. I actually don't think we've done it. I mean, I've been to the winery. <laughs> oh, well. Um, but I, you're right. I don't think we've ever done it. Yeah. And I mean, for those of y'all that didn't know, Robert Mondavi is probably one of the biggest wine brands in America. Anywhere that sells like bottles of wine, any kind of liquor store or grocery store that does sell wine, Robert Mondavi will be there. I mean, it's up there in like popularity with, I don't know, Cupcake behringer stuff i mean it is one of the widest known wine brands so that's mostly my shock of how we've never done it but doing it now yeah i mean robert mondavi was essentially like basically the founder of napa oh i didn't know that it was one of the very first and like became like really booming and got other wineries to come in the area i don't think i'm making that up i think i really heard that when i was there but i mean it's Robert Mondavi. It's very well known. It's one of those wines that a lot of the times you can say the name and wine drinkers and non-wine drinkers alike or have some type of familiar- familiarity with it. Familiarity? What? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a hard word. I get it. You know, don't call me out. Your cat's screaming at me in the background too. You guys are ganging up on me. Listen, I don't know if y'all can hear it, but we sure can. So this wine, Robert Mondavi. Thanks for starting Napa Bobby M, as Bobby his friends probably M. called him. Totally. Mm-hmm. So the 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon is actually not 100% cab. It's blended with some small amounts of Petite Syrah, Cabernet Franc, and Syrah. And these grapes all come from some of the cooler climate parts of California. The wine is very deep. It has this rich ruby color um, and a pretty medium body with some soft, ripe tannins. The aromas they list, it's a lot, so bear with me, (laughs) y'all. The aromas you get, ripe black cherries, blackberries, cassis with cigar box, black pepper, vanilla, toasty oak, and hints of uh, some French roast coffee. Oh, yum. I'm, I'm liking how all of that sounds. Same. I'm like, those are all things I want in a cab. Mm hmm. So the flavors, you get some ripe Bing cherries, blackberries, and then a little bit of plum with the vanilla oak, and then just a little hint of coffee. And it has a pretty long finish. This wine goes really well with roasted or grilled meat, some hearty pasta, or also some stronger cheeses because it can stand up to them. And this one is very highly rated. It has like 85% on like the one of the wine looking up websites. Yeah. Like, so people vote that, which for a well-known and a cheaper wine like this, 
that is incredible. Totally. And I bought my bottle for 10 bucks, but I think you can usually find it closer to like seven or eight. I think so. Eight sounds like the magic number. Yeah. I, f- I just have a picture in my mind of seven ninety nine. <laughs> That's what you see. Seven ninety nine. Yes. Well, I'm gonna start opening this up. Do it. And this one is a uh, regular cork, not a not a screw top or anything. Ugh. I swear, I always feel like when I see you do that, you're gonna like take the neck of the bottle off. You just you do it with so much force. Yeah. No, that would fair. How does it smell? Um, it it definitely is one that has a stronger smell. Like jam- um, jammy, or is it oaky? Definitely oaky. Oh. Mm. Okay, well, I'm thirsty. Tell me about your wine. So the bottle I picked was one of those that I walked by it and like immediately knew I had to get it because the bottle was so cool. The name of the wine was really intriguing. It is called the 2017 Rain Cloud Red Blend from California, and it has this beautiful black label with gold like the names in gold and then there's someone with an umbrella i love that label me too and and i got it at trader joe's i was there getting my weekly groceries which of course included wine and i saw it and i was like that's it that's the one i have to do and you know how at trader joe's they have like when they have a new wine or one that they're pushing or or whatever this had like its own little display Hmm. There's the little um, thing they write on that says like the name of it and like all the things about it that are not necessarily mm-hmm. on the bottle. And so that was really helpful. I mean, because the bottle talks about it being like really fruity and um, it's from California, like some of the basic things that I can already deduce because it's a red blend. And so thank you, Trader Joe's, for providing some tasting notes. Um, so this wine has notes of blueberry, black pepper, mint leaves, and some subtle earth. And it's a very perfect blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. So this wine is going to be deep. It's going to be smooth. Um, it's it's going to be good. Yeah. And what's even better about that, it was $5. Nope, that's a lie. It was $5.99. It was $6 at Trader Joe's. May as well have been 5 because super cheap. And um, I'm really looking forward to trying it. It does have a cork. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this wine. Yes. Open that up. And this is acting like a cork that doesn't want to come out. Um, So Mm. I'm going to try not to rip off the neck of the bottle like I just talked about. I'm a little scared. Fair. Yeah, it's really in there. Got it. There we go. Okay, let's give this a pour. Ooh, that's dark. That is a deep purple this is gonna be a teeth stainer i can tell you right now this one smells um woody like cedar oh and earth and maybe a little bit of mint i don't know because it it looks very dark also a little bit of tobacco yeah definitely tobacco tobacco and like blueberry um okay yes that's an interesting combo yeah it is it's like blueberry dip ew (laughs) okay well i guess on that note Cheers. Cheers. Tell me, how'd Bobby do? That's a solid cab. Definitely on the fruitier side. It wouldn't be your favorite cab, or I guess I'm not surprised that it's not your favorite cab, because it is fruitier. Yeah. It definitely smells oakier than it tastes. But overall, I mean, that's a great cab. Good. I'm glad you like it, because that's always a good classic to go to. Yeah. Like, if you need... Apparently, this is my new thing... No, you guys, I don't go to dinner parties, but I continuously recommend wines for you to take to them. If you have a dinner party, it's a good one to take. Um, <laughs> I have dinner parties of one. Womp womp. <laughs> yeah, but actually it's parties of three because it's me, Charlie, and Willow. So this wine is really good. It's very smooth. I definitely taste that earth, little hints of pepper, but I'm really picking up on the mint. And it's not mm. like, it, it's not like I'm, drinking like wintergreen gum or anything it's it's very you know how if you chew on a mint leaf it's very different than mint flavored things yeah it's more like actual mint um so it's like kind of cooling very smooth not not too tannic um it's dry not sweet but not super dry so like dry -er. i recommend it 
for $6, this is a very complex wine. And I feel like I'm going to continuously be tasting like different fruits, different things as I drink on it throughout the episode. Nice. But hey, we've got our wine. We've talked about our topic. Let's jump into Murders from the 80s. All right. I'm going to kick the 80s off with the murderer Joseph Christopher, also known as the 22 caliber killer. I've heard of that name. No idea what he actually did. But he's on those lists. For sure. Yeah. He's on the list and you're about to learn. So the sources that I used, an article from Oxygen by Gina Tron, and then I used Murderpedia and Wikipedia. So Joseph Christopher, he was born in Buffalo, New York on July 26th of 1955. And his dad was a very outdoorsy person. He hunted, he liked being outdoors, and he taught Joseph how to shoot and use weapons from a very young age. And according to friends when he was younger, he also had this passion for the outdoors, like above everything else. So in 1971, he enrolled in like a automotive mechanic program at vocational school. And those that knew him said he was this quiet student. He did really well in his shop courses and he was very intelligent, but wasn't book smart. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of mean. That is mean. I hate it when people like call other people like, oh, they're smart, but like not not book smart. And I'm like, guys, um, not that I'm trying to defend this murderer, uh, but it's like, guys, that's called like learning disabilities. Like, let's not let's not say people aren't book smart. That's rude as shit. For real. He did drop out, though, after a few years in early 1974. Because everyone was telling him he's not book smart. So he was like... <laughs> Probably. <laughs> he was like, I guess I'm not. <laughs> guess I don't need school then. I'll just go use my other smarts. So after he dropped out, he had a, some odd jobs before he got a job as a maintenance man at Canisius College. It's either Canisius or Canassus, but... I think it's Canassus. That sounds right. That feels better, but it's an I... I don't know. At... A college. <laughs> um, but he was fired from there in March of 1979 for sleeping on the job. Uh-oh. And yeah, I'm like, don't sleep on the job. Like, we've all had that thought of like crawling into our under our desk and taking a nap. But like, you don't actually do it. True. He was working the night shift, I will say, though, which that sucks. But after he was fired, he went back to live with his parents. So Joseph Christopher, he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. And he'd actually reached out for assistance after he noticed his mental health was starting to slip in 1978. And he'd actually tried to admit himself to the Buffalo Psychiatric Center in September of 1980. But the staff told him that since he's not a danger to himself or others, they couldn't admit him. What? And yeah, right, like, nowadays, looking back, and also with what this case is, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? But apparently that was pretty common at the time, because a lot of these centers were having budget cuts, they were being downsized. So instead of, you know, admitting him, they recommended counseling therapy. Well, and I will say we learned, like, in the asylums episode, you know, that was back in, like, the 50s when you sneezed and looked at someone wrong and they put you in the asylum. So yeah. they're definitely overcrowded. So I I can see, you know, once we're at the 80s, they're like, look, you're not a harm to yourself or others. Like, you just need to go talk to someone. And he's like, no, but I really think I need to be here. And they're like, mm-mm, you're good. Yeah, and they were very wrong about him not being a harm to others because two weeks, 14 days after leaving the center, oh, shit. that's when his killings began. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, another thing to note that is important to this is he was racist as fuck. So his murder spree, it started on September 22nd of 1980. And in this first period, he killed four black men in the space of 36 hours. With a twenty-two caliber rifle. Four? Four people. In 36 hours. Oh mm-hmm. my god. And it wasn't like a um like a spree shooting or a mass shooting. It was like four separate incidents. And that was why the um media started referring to this killer as the twenty-two caliber killer. Yeah. On September twenty-second, the beginning of his first spree, fourteen-year-old Glenn Dunn was shot and killed outside of a supermarket in Buffalo. He had just been sitting in the car when he was just shot. 
and witnesses described whoever did this as just some unidentified white youth. The next day, 32-year-old Harold Green was shot while he was eating at a fast food restaurant in Chictawaga. And then later on that same day, that night, 30-year-old Emmanuel Thomas was killed by a sniper while he was crossing the street. What? He was just crossing the street? Yeah, he was crossing the street and then said nowhere, gunshot rings out and kills him. And it was just seven blocks away from where Glenn Dunn had been killed the day before. The very next day on the 24th in Niagara Falls, which is pretty close to Buffalo, uh, Joseph McCoy was also murdered. So there's this series of like what seem to be random shootings going on, and this is all fucking Joseph, isn't it? Yeah. The police pretty quickly realized that all four victims had been killed by the same gun. And then once they released that, that's when the media and everyone picked up on this is one person. Yeah. And this is the 22 caliber killer. I hate it. I hate it. So at this point, it's pretty clear whoever is doing this is targeting black individuals. And yet the black community in Buffalo was basically not getting any kind of police protection at this point. That's really messed up. Mm -hmm. Because they clearly need protection. And I realize race is playing a huge role in this, but they're fucking human beings and they need protection. Especially if they're getting shot sniper style. None of these victims are doing anything. No. They're all just sitting in a car, crossing the street. I mean, going about their out day. out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. A cross was even burned in Buffalo, and that sparked off even more fears that these murders were just, like, a sign of things to come, and that there could be some kind of, like, group basically committing a genocide. Like the KKKs up in Buffalo. Yeah. So things got a lot worse on October 8th, and that was when 71-year-old Parler Edwards, he was a taxi driver, he was found in the trunk of his car, it was parked in uh, Amherst, which is a suburb nearby, and his heart had been cut out and taken. Are you kidding me? Wait, Yeah. his actual heart was removed from his chest and he was in the trunk of his own car? Yes. These are, okay, I... Did not imagine it was going this direction. That is a very different type of vicious murder than... Yeah, it's gruesome. The next day, so October 9th, another cabbie, 40-year-old Ernest Jones, he was found beside the Niagara River, and his heart had also been ripped out of his chest. What does he need with these men's hearts? I have no fucking idea. And in the source I was looking at... That's basically the last time you hear about that. I'm sorry. I feel like there needs to be more discussion around the fact that these two men had their fucking hearts removed. Yeah. It's like, was he trying to steal their identity, their being? Was I mean, was he going to eat them? Literally, I'm thinking even like cannibalism and like vampirism and all of this. Okay, wow. Or was he just being a gruesome murderer? I, I mean, I don't know. All the above. On the next day, a patient at the hospital, 37-year-old Colin Cole. He'd been sick, so that's why he was at the hospital, and he's recovering. And as he's laying in bed, this stranger comes up to his bedside and leans down and says that he hates the N-word, and then started strangling him. What the fuck? He went into a hospital now? He went into a hospital. He really is a schizophrenic. He is just doing so many different types of gruesome killings like yeah and seeking these people out in their everyday or or like moments of weakness with this person in the hospital yeah it's it's horrifying and i think that's a big part of why his mo seems to be all over the place the victims are all coming from the same community same racial background but the ways he's doing these killings and murdering these people are all over the place. Yeah, it's all across the board. So thankfully, a nurse arrived and saw what was happening, was like, what the fuck? And he got away, but um, Cole was able to live. He survived. He was in serious condition, though, and he had some very severe damage done to his throat, but he lived. And the man who attacked him, it was the same description that eyewitnesses had reported the twenty-two caliber killer. I'm so glad he survived. Me too. 
So then things move from like the northern New York, Buffalo area to Manhattan on December 22nd. And on that day, five black men and one Hispanic man were all stabbed and four of them died in less than 13 hours. He was probably just walking down the street wielding a knife. Yeah. So 25-year-old John Adams, he was the first person to be stabbed, but he survived. And that this was around 11.30 in the morning. Oh my god, it's not even nighttime. No, it's the middle of the day in Manhattan. I mean, I understand how in New York it's somehow easier to like not really pay attention to what's going on, but... You're seeing people getting murdered. Like, you don't have to intervene, but, like, fucking call 911. For real. Like, definitely don't intervene. Yeah, I mean, don't put yourself in any more danger, but absolutely call 911. Two hours after stabbing John Adams, 32-year-old Ivan Frazier was attacked on the street. But he was able to, like, deflect the knife with his hand. So he got some knife cuts on his hand, but... He was able to run away. But John and Ivan were the only two that day to survive. Luis Rodriguez, who was 19, he was like a bike messenger. He was stabbed at about 3.30. And police were like, it looks like it could have been a holdup. So he was like robbing him, but they didn't, they weren't sure. Yeah. And they also had really no motive for the deaths of 30-year-old Anton Davis, who was killed at just before 7 p.m., or 20-year-old Richard Renner, who was killed that night. The last victim of this spree um, was discovered just before midnight, and he was a John Doe, and he'd been stabbed to death on the street near Madison Square Garden. Busy area. Yeah, I mean, this isn't even like the, the side streets or alleys and stuff. This is in public. Well, and... This is, I, I will say, these series of attacks are all similar. So at least the police can, like, immediately know that, like, oh, shit, this is all related. Like, there is someone going around the city terrorizing. At least I fucking hope they'd made the connection. They did, but they didn't connect it to the incidents in Buffalo. No, I get so, that. I, I'm just talking about that day in Manhattan. Yeah, he was known uh, at this time. They were looking for the Midtown Slasher. So you also might hear him referred to as that person stabbing people in midtown i feel like that was also a thing in the 80s where you had to give every criminal a name yeah like you had to refer to them as something and it's why like the golden state killer has so many different names like it's just ridiculous east area rapist and i understand the use of it it's like in the media it's recognizable it's but also Part of me is like, use their fucking name because these are people that are doing horrible things and we don't need to turn them into some type of like super villain because they're humans and and not a comic book character. Like there are actually people doing this crazy shit. Well, I mean, I think a lot of the times the names will come when they don't know who it is. Okay, yeah, that is super valid of a point. But I'm still saying like the names, they try to make them sound cool. Oh, oh yeah, it's they're like marketing it. No, I totally agree. So on December 29th, police are still searching for this midtown slasher in Manhattan. But on December 29th, back in Buffalo, 31-year-old Roger Adams was stabbed to death. Then the next day, December 30th, Wendell Barnes, who was 26, he was stabbed to death in Rochester. And the following day, this one blows my mind, the following day, December 31st, Albert Menifee was stabbed in the chest. And it nicked his heart, and he lived. That, he was stabbed in the heart. That's some luck on his side, because all it takes is a nick to the heart to kill you. Yeah. So, also, again, I just want to let y'all know, this started in late September, and we're only to December. Oh my god, it is a very short span of time. Yeah. On January 1st, the next day, New Year's Day, uh, 1981... Both Larry Little and Calvin Crippen were attacked separately, and both of them survived. They fought off the guy who was attacking them, and both of them lived. But all of these stabbings started, the police started looking at this, looking at what happened in Manhattan. And on January 6th, police announced that they were probably linked to the 22 caliber killer. So they were finally able to like, oh shit, this is the same person doing all this. Yep. 
but they still had no idea who it could be. I feel like when it's something this random, this is what's crazy to me. There are so many people who are caught when they're trying to be careful and they're still caught by like some type of DNA or a fingerprint or something they left behind. But when there are these random killings, a lot of the times they happen so quickly that or in an area where like if it's the middle of the street, like there's not things for them to touch other than the murder weapon and the person, you know, so they happen so quickly that there's nothing left behind. And so all these random killings don't leave enough evidence for the police to really go off of anything. So it's difficult to solve. Yeah. It's crazy because it's so public. Exactly. You'd think that the easiest murder to solve would be someone stabbing someone next to Madison Square Garden. Yeah. But not the that's case. not the case. So there was a big break in the case, though, 12 days after this. During this time, Joseph Christopher, he's actually in, like, the military. And if you're wondering... Hmm, it seems like there were a lot of stabbings kind of happening in September timeframe, October, and then a shit ton all at once in December. It's because that's when he was furloughed. He was like on break, like from the military. And so he went back home to see his family and stuff. And that's when the killings resumed there. Oh my god. But in early January, he went back to Georgia to where he, I don't know, base, Fort Benning. And that was when he was arrested because he had attacked a um, another military officer with a knife. And so the police are like, oh, fuck no, you're not doing this. At this point, they're looking at it as like an assault, maybe an attempted murder, this one-off random army guy in Georgia. Yeah. But then they search his house. And um, his house was in Buffalo. And then they start finding all of this twenty-two caliber ammunition they find a gun barrel, and they found two sawed-off rifle stocks. Oh, my God. And they also learned that he joined the military November 13th and got to Fort Benning six days after that. And from December 19th to January 4th, he was on leave back in New York. And these are the time frames when the killings were happening. They also found a bus ticket of his bus arrival to Manhattan on December 20th. Uh, This is all piling up. I'm glad that he seems like he's a pretty stupid criminal. It's like he got away with it for so long, not even trying to get away with it. But it's like once they had any type of lead, they're quickly like, this is our fucking guy. Well, at this point, they have a lot of evidence, but it's not, they still need like the gun or something. You know, they need something they can actually arrest him on. But in May of that year, like five months later. Oh, oh, that took a while. Well, maybe not well, in, not in police time, but. Well, it um is another thing of how you were saying he is a stupid criminal. So he was in the hospital. He had um, self-inflicted wounds. But while he's in the hospital, he was bragging to a nurse that he was involved in the killings in Buffalo last September. And she's probably like, oh, that's crazy. And left and was like, okay, can someone call 911? Yeah. We have a murderer here. Was this the same hospital that he actually went into and killed that man? I don't think so. Oh, because that would have been real ballsy. Yeah, I'm assuming this is still in Georgia. I'm not sure, though. Oh. But yeah, so he bragged to her that he was doing it. And then four days later, he was charged in three of the shooting deaths. And then on June 29th, a fourth murder count was arrested added um, as well as the non-fatal stabbings in buffalo so basically the murders he's committing in buffalo and the attacks the people that survived are all starting to come down on him they're starting to fully connect the dots and then he was also indicted in new york city for the murder of luis rodriguez and then the stabbing of ivan frazier who lived but just those two why I'm not sure if they, maybe at this point when they did those initial indictments, they didn't have all the evidence and their plan was to do it later. I'm not sure. In October of that year, October of 1981, he waived his right for a jury trial. And what that meant is that a judge would decide what happens to him. Yep. Two months after that, he was found mentally incompetent to stand trial. But by April of the next year, the ruling was reversed. He was found competent, and on April 27th of 1982, after 12 days of testimony, he was convicted on three accounts of first-degree murder, and that gave him a prison sentence of 60 years to life. So is that where he is now? Uh, no, it's not. Oh, you're not done. I'm not done yet. 
I mean, that was just three murders he was convicted of on that sentence. Okay. He did a lot more killing than that. I mean, he definitely did. So on September of 1983, he's sitting down. He's being interviewed by some journalists in Buffalo. And they're talking to him. And he's like, yeah, I think I probably killed like 13 people. And when the reporters are asking like, well, did you also kill Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones? Like the taxi men who had their hearts removed. He didn't deny it. But so do we really know that was him? It was so different. I mean, I know he had tons of different MOs, but that one was removing their hearts. Yeah, that one is, to me, the one that really sticks out. I mean, charges were never filed against him for it. So his not denying it did not count as a confession. Right. So I don't know. In July of 1985, his conviction in Buffalo was overturned on the grounds that the judge had improperly barred testimony that would point to his mental incompetence. So his sentence was overturned. But in Manhattan, a jury rejected his insanity plea and convicted him in the murder of Luis Rodriguez and attacking Ivan Frazier. This is insane. You can kill this many people and it's like one is what you're being charged for. It's like he, but he did so much shit and they could only really get him on one. Yeah. On March 1st of 1993, at the age of 37, he died in prison from uh, breast cancer. I have heard about him because it is rare for a man to have breast cancer. Totally possible, though, if y'all didn't know that. Absolutely possible. Uh, Yeah. Men still have boobs. They just don't call them boobs. They call them pecs. But totally still possible. And I remember hearing about that because it's not something you hear every day. Yeah. That is the case of the murderer... Joseph Christopher, the 22 caliber killer. A racist piece of shit, monster asshole. That was a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. And I'm so, I have so many thoughts. Like, I'm very frustrated that he wasn't able to be convicted of more of these crimes. I'm really frustrated that it seems like the two victims who had their hearts removed seem like it could be done with someone else, but it doesn't seem like anything was ever pursued on those like a ton of his victims never came into the picture when it came to conviction time and so it's like did they just like ignore those cases like those are still victims those are still people it's and i know there will oftentimes be cases especially when you lump them all into one trial where if if you're sure you can get a conviction on these but you're unsure on those and it might cast doubt on the whole thing it can be risky right but that denies justice for these victims. It does. Okay. You want to continue the horrors yeah. that are the 80s? I uh, don't, but please do tell me about your horrible murder from the 80s. Okay. Well, I did the murder of Dorothy Stratton. And the sources that I used, an article from All That's Interesting by Caroline Redman, an article from ABC News by Lauren Efron and Anthony Rivas, and an article from People Magazine by Harriet Skokmansur. Apologies, Harriet, if I said your last name wrong. Listen, we're not entomologists. Names are hard. Entomologist is bugs, I think, actually. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Insectomodologist. Perfect. So Dorothy Stratton was a teenager in Vancouver, Canada in 1978 when she caught the eye of a man named Paul Snyder. He was a local pimp with dreams of Hollywood fame. Dorothy was working at a Dairy Queen And she was a young teen trying to help out her mother who was uh, working in the school cafeteria. And she'd been working at Dairy Queen for four years. So like all through high school when Snyder walked in one day and saw her. At the time, Snyder was making a pretty good living as a promoter for automobile shows and cycling shows. But for him, that type of money was not enough to accommodate his very extravagant taste. And so this is when he began procuring girls um, to pimp them on the side. Those who knew him said Snyder saw an opportunity in Dorothy and he started to groom her, you know, teach her the ways. Snyder would compliment Dorothy on the things um, uh, that she felt the most insecure and vulnerable about. He would compliment her on those, you know, so maybe Mm. they didn't seem as weird. Yeah. She said that he would also shower her with really expensive gifts, nice dinners, and even a gown to wear to senior prom, and he ended up taking her to prom. Now, she was still a teenager at this point, and he was 26 years old. Oh, that's so fucking creepy, y'all. Like... 
and I don't know why I feel like it's not as widely viewed as creepy as it should be. But I'm like, if you're in your 20s, do not date someone in high school. Yeah. I mean, especially like, come on. He's not just like 20, you know? Yeah. It's not like, oh, well, he's a college sophomore and she's a high school senior where it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. So in 1978... Playboy was hosting a great playmate hunt contest, um, and they were wanting to scout out a new playmate to be featured in its centerfold for its 25th anniversary, which was going to be the following year in 1979. Snyder convinced then-18-year-old Dorothy to be photographed nude by a professional photographer, and while, you know, in his convincing her to do this, he's painting all these pictures of this brighter future, how she can do so much more than she's ever imagined for herself. Like, come on, you just have to have these photos taken. No big deal. Well, it took her about two weeks to agree to him because she had never done something like this. She had never taken her clothes off for anyone, but she eventually did it for him. Uh, I hate this. Oh, this one's, yeah, it's crazy. There's just the way she was introduced into this world. And like, I have nothing against Playboy. Like if that's what you want to do, by all means, be a Playgirl. But when it seems like someone is nearly convincing you to be in it for their own pleasures and like needs, that's not, that's not okay. He's so manipulating her. Yes. Yes. So when Playboy saw Dorothy's test shots, they arranged to fly her down to LA to meet Marilyn Grabowski, which she was the magazine's West Coast photo editor, and she had worked with Hugh Hefner for over 40 years. This was Dorothy's very first time on an airplane and in a limo. Because again, like, this is not her life. No, she was, you know, a teen girl who worked at Dairy Queen to help her mom out, suddenly being exposed to these kind of, like, fancy shit. Exactly. And so when Dorothy arrived to the Playboy office, Grabowski said uh, she explained to Dorothy that they would take a few test shots, then they were going to send her back home and let her know if she made the cut. Because again, this is all for the centerfold 1979 25th anniversary. However, the January 1979 centerfold ended up going to Candy Loving, who was at that time a senior at the University of Oklahoma, uh, which is, there you go. They thought that Candy could better handle the spotlight because Dorothy just seemed so shy. She was this gorgeous woman, but she was naive. And when she, they said when she talked, she seemed more like a a young girl and they just didn't think she was ready for the spotlight. Which, honestly, kind of bravo to them. Yeah, I'm honestly surprised with uh, the timing of it that that would be something they were, like, focused on. Yeah, however, they didn't, like, tell her no to being in Playboy, period. It was just Uh that specific centerfold. Hefner and Playboy, they really, really liked her photos. And they ended up naming her Miss August in 1979. So she also worked as a Playboy bunny at the Playboy Club in the LA neighborhood of Century City. At this time, she was still only 18 years old, so she wasn't able to serve any alcohol. So she was a door bunny who would greet guests as they arrived. Hugh Hefner really saw potential in Dorothy, and he declared that she was going to be the next Marilyn Monroe. Wow. So he really, really liked her. So basically, what felt like overnight... Dorothy found herself in the middle of all the high-profile Hollywood parties. She was really excited because, of course, this is exciting. This is something she thought she wanted for herself, but Paul was kind of the one that really forced this dream on her. But she also seemed really overwhelmed and scared because, again, she's she's like 18 years old. This is a completely new world, and a lot of things are being expected of her. And so because of this, she stayed close with the one person she knew from back home, and that was Paul Snyder. So as Playboy continued to welcome Dorothy into this world, it seemed as if Snyder was left out more and more. There were a lot of people at the Playboy Mansion at the time, and pretty much everyone there did not like Paul. Mm-hmm. They even caught him with another woman um, at the Playboy Mansion. And so security kicked him off the property, and they were like, you are only allowed to come back here if you're with Dorothy. So in June 1979, uh, a few months after Snyder had moved to Los Angeles full-time to be with Dorothy, the two of them got married. Oh, 
Grabowski said that she and Hefner and like a lot of the others um, at the mansion, a lot of Dorothy's friends, they opposed the marriage. Nobody thought this was a good idea at all. But Dorothy went through it anyway because she didn't feel like she could really get out of it. She felt like this whole new world that she was in, it only came to her because of Paul. So why why shouldn't she marry him? Which, my God, never ever the thought she should have going into marriage. No, if you are ever in a marriage or relationship or like being pushed or something like that out of feeling an obligation or like feeling like you should be grateful to your partner, like, no. Those are red flags. You should never um, feel like you can't get out of it. Yeah. Which, and, and I know some people in situations, they can't, but Dorothy seemed like she could. But she didn't because Paul was the only person she really knew. And she still held on to that. And he was the reason everything had come to her. Ugh. So by the time they were married... Hugh Hefner had actually connected Dorothy with a professional manager and a money manager, which was further pushing Snyder off to the sides. Like, dude, Mm -hmm. she doesn't need you. Because again, no one fucking likes this guy. So after an appearance on Playboy's Roller Disco and Pajama Party, which aired on ABC in late 1979, Dorothy's... What? Yeah. On ABC? Apparently in the late 70s playboy was on abc and i honestly bet you could look up youtube videos and figure out what this was because it was obviously okay for tv so it's not like it's not porn it's not hbo porn yeah it's abc like girls in pajamas jumping around probably pillow fights that's weird (laughs) so after dorothy was on that show she started landing a lot of different acting gigs and she'd be included um in parts in films and tv shows like fantasy island and buck rogers in the 25th century and these were small small parts but still they were rolling it and in 1980 in addition to being named playmate of the year she landed the title role in the sci-fi comedy Galaxina. I have never heard of any of these. No, I mean, number one, we didn't watch TV in 1980. We weren't alive. Number two, okay. this film is like not like a high box office film or anything. You mean it's not a Steven Spielberg? It's not. But for her, for this young girl coming out of Canada, this was humongous which i mean any oh my god yeah any actor starting out any lead role in a film is baller i mean no her her career trajectory is amazing right now it is and so dorothy was soon introduced to filmmaker peter bogdanovich who he was fresh out of relationship and he was looking for some new projects and so he started spending time at the playboy mansion so eventually he starts to really like dorothy You know, he's got a crush on her and he decides he's going to write a role specifically for her in an upcoming film called They All Laughed, which starred Audrey Hepburn, Ben Gazzara and John Ritter. So this is a big film. This was going to be Dorothy's big break. I mean, come on, starring aside Audrey Hepburn. I know. I'm like, God. Bogdanovich said he and Dorothy had started falling in love before they started making the movie. And he even told a co-worker that while they were in production, he was madly in love with her. At the same time, things are not going well in Dorothy's marriage to Snyder. Snyder is just being more and more controlling. And as Dorothy's career is rapidly growing, he starts to become like really desperate. He's just like, again, he's been kicked off to the sidelines. He was the one that brought her here in the first place. What is she doing? Like, basically not wanting to be with him. And so he's desperate. Um, yeah. I mean, I just, the. She's a woman growing her own career. Like, hey, cool. Yeah, you brought her down here forcibly, but she made, she made her peace with that and is making a living. Yeah. The whole, the controlling thing and all of this and he's like i introduced you to it and it's like okay but she took that and made it where she's at now exactly he didn't do any of that that was all her an intro only takes you so far so around the same time patty lerman who was a teenage grocery store clerk that snyder was trying to turn into his next playboy model 
had moved into the West Los Angeles house that Snyder and Dorothy shared together with another housemate, Stephen Kushner. Dorothy actually ended up moving in with Bogdanovich once they returned from filming in New York. And at that time, she met with Snyder and expressed wishes for an amicable separation. She mentioned that she wanted to um, have a settlement for Snyder because he'd helped get her to Hollywood. So again, like literally, she is still being so gracious to him. She's such an incredible person. Yeah, she admits to him. Like, I believe he had suspicions that something was going on and like hired a private investigator. And he kind of knew that she was in a relationship. But, like, when she got back from filming, she immediately went over and told him that she was in this relationship with Peter and that she wants a divorce. And she's hoping that they can do that, like, amicably. But it was also around this time that Snyder really started to spiral and he tries to get a gun. He borrowed a thirty-eight revolver from a friend and he would wait outside Bogdanovich's home. Soon after that, his friend, like, asked for the gun back. His friend was like, "Mm, dude, can I have that back? So Snyder then bought a 12-gauge shotgun from the classified ads, and he picked it up on the night of August 13th, 1980. So on August 14th, Dorothy went over to the house that she used to share with Snyder, Kushner, and Lorman, and she was trying to negotiate with Snyder um, this settlement that was a part of their divorce. All of the people that were super close to her, they were really concerned about her going over to the house. They were like, do not go see him alone. So she actually snuck over there. Lorman said that she was at the house in the morning, but she left because she knew that Dorothy's was going to come over to talk to Snyder. And Kushner said that he wasn't like he hadn't been home all day because he'd spent the previous night at his girlfriend's house. And then he went straight to work in the morning. So he hadn't been home in a while. As the day progresses and that evening when Kushner got home from work, Lorman was back in the house as well. And he saw Dorothy's car, a Mercury Cougar, and Snyder's Mercedes with the vanity license plate Star 80 in the driveway. So they're there, which there's later like a movie or a book or something called Star 80, and that's where they got the title from, his fucking license plate. Oh. So I don't really know what it means, but Star 80. I hate it. Douchebag. Yeah. So Kushner and Lorman, they, you know, they were upstairs watching TV and they assumed that Snyder and Dorothy had reconciled and that they were downstairs together. But after a few hours of silence and not hearing anything, no talking, no walking around, Kushner and Lorman got like, they were curious, like, what the fuck's going on? And so they decided to knock on Snyder's bedroom door and there was no answer. So then Kushner decided to open the door. Inside the room, they found Snyder and Dorothy's naked bodies, and both of them were dead. Police later determined that Snyder had raped Dorothy and shot her in the face with the 12-gauge shotgun that he'd purchased and picked up the night before, before he turned the gun on himself. At this point in time, Dorothy was only 20 years old. Oh, baby... It was later said that his forcing sex upon her and killing her was his way of regaining some type of power. Um, You know, he, in his spiraling, was realizing that he had no future without her, and he didn't want her to have a future with anyone else. Literally, fuck toxic masculinity. This fucking Um, dude. Wow. Okay. Sorry, I have to gather my thoughts. Um, Okay, first off, literally just fuck him. Second off... If you feel like you cannot do things without, like, another person in this type of scenario, like, I'd be nothing without her, or, like, things that, you take a real long look at yourself and maybe just focus on improving you, so maybe you can do things by yourself, instead of putting all this, like, blame and focus on someone who it's like, no, you're just a shitty fucking person. Yeah, and, like, friends believe that Snyder murdered Dorothy as, like, this last-ditch effort to show that he was in control. And these are the things that really piss me off about murder-suicides, is I'm like, okay, look, if you literally feel like suicide is the only answer, do not take someone else down with you. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, this just showed, like, this level of control of him being like, well, I don't have a future with her, and no one else will either. 
And it's just so selfish to the extreme because she was a blossoming star. Like her career was happening. She had gotten her big break. She was being made like she had gone through this, like it it literally almost feels like some type of kidnapping where she was taken to LA to live this life she didn't even know she wanted. And then she was good at it. And then, yeah. And then she was like, you know what? I'm taking this that I'm not sure I want, that I'm not comfortable being. But I'm going to make it my own. Yeah. And take ownership of it. So both Bogdanovich and Hefner, they were devastated over losing Dorothy. Because again, she had so much promise. And I mean, they had grown to love her. I mean, especially Bogdanovich. I mean, that was her boyfriend. Yeah. So four years after Dorothy's death, Bogdanovich published a book called The Killing of the Unicorn. And part of this book, he actually blamed Hugh Hefner and the culture of Playboy Mansion for contributing to Dorothy's death. He also accused Hugh Hefner of making unwanted advances on Dorothy at the Playboy Playboy Mansion in 1978. And so in 85, when ABC interviewed Hefner, they asked him, like, you know, for the record, did you seduce her? Hugh replied, no, I didn't. And for the record, I never tried to. So later at a press conference that same year, Hugh Hefner said, Dorothy's tragic death was motivated not in any way by her association with Playboy, but clearly by the breakup of her marriage because the affair because of the affair with Peter Bogdanovich. So Hugh is quickly trying to like be like, no, don't fucking put this on us. Which I obviously don't know all the details because there's so much more to this. But from yeah. what I all what all I just said, this really is like fucking Paul. It is his response to her becoming something and him being swept to the side. Yeah, that's that's kind of my thing. I there are definitely a lot of things that are very problematic with like the Playboy culture and stuff. I mean, I don't. I absolutely don't have all the information on this or any yeah. of it in particular. But I don't like that Bogdanovich's like, it's Hugh Hefner's fault. And Hugh Hefner's like, it's Bogdanovich's fault. And I'm like, no, it's neither of you. It's this fucking toxic masculinity and this piece of shit dude who feels like that she's basically his property. Exactly. That's exactly what I was... I was like in my head thinking the word property. And I was like, if you don't say it, I'm going to say it. Because that's exactly what he thought. So Bogdanovich went on to take care of Dorothy's family for years after she died, including Dorothy's younger sister, Louise. And he said, if I'd married Dorothy, this would be my family. So I wasn't going to stop being their family because she was dead. Wow. And I like really like him. And I hate that their relationship was cut short because it seems like one Mm -hmm. that could have been super genuine and super great Mm -hmm. for both of them. Yeah. So Bogdanovich and Luis actually, um, their relationship later developed into a romance, which honestly doesn't surprise me. I'm sure like the tragedy of losing Dorothy, they had a lot of connections. And also I'm sure he had a lot of similarities with her too. Yeah. And the two of them got married eight years after Dorothy's murder, which is a long time. So they really had a long relationship going on here. Yeah. I mean, if it had been like one year, I'd be like, that shit's suspect. But I mean, eight years and yeah, none of that surprises me. However, they did divorce in 2001, but they do continue to work together on film projects, including the 2014 film, She's Funny That Way. So if anyone's curious, they all laughed. Um, I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. So if anyone knows where it's streaming, please let me know. But you can buy a DVD of it on Amazon and they completed filming. And so Dorothy's in that movie. And it sounds very interesting. It's about like private investigators and stuff and like these ladies. And I think I don't think it's a serious movie. I think it's more of like a dramedy or like a romantic comedy. I have no idea. I don't know a ton about this movie except that I really want to watch it now. Because it's like her last big moment. And I'm I'm glad she was able to finish it. Because unfortunately, very tragic things happen to actors in in the middle of projects and so at least she could leave this legacy behind yeah and i just fuck paul snyder fuck his toxic masculinity and fuck him thinking that she was property and that he had any right to kill her absolutely so that is the case of the murder of dorothy stratton shit wow okay i guess postmortem postmortem let's do it so i will kick us off 
And I'm just going to straight up say I think your case was the more intense. And I want to I want to explain a little bit of my thoughts. Number one, way more victims, which just is it's really difficult when we cover a case that has multiple victims. But Mm -hmm. for my case, there was this aspect of celebrity. And so there's more information out there. Your case, because of the race issue, it's like not as well known. It's not all over the news as much. I mean, I guess it was at the time because he had all these names he was going by. But I know when you were doing your research, there was a lack of information out there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely struggled more than I thought I would. Because when I first saw this, I was like, oh my god, this serial killer and all these victims and stuff. Like, there's going to be a wealth of information. And, you know, there was a decent amount, but for what it was, not really. Yeah. I mean, even the Wikipedia page, it's a short one. I mean, you can find longer Wikipedia pages over, like, construction of the Chrysler building. Well, and the fact that I brought up after you said your case, that there were so many of these victims that never received justice. Like, that is something that just makes me so, it it infuriates me when that happens. When they, like, essentially close a case, even though there was no resolution. Yeah, because at that point, the victim has been murdered. And so, like, all that's left is justice and answers. And when when you take that away too, it's just, that's just so fucked up to like the families and loved ones of the victims. It is. Uh, but yeah, I'll agree. I think my case was more intense. I think yours definitely had more of a like a cinematic quality to it. And I mean, yeah, it was Hollywood and stuff, but it was also such a story. You know, the small town woman who's not high income and helping out her family, and she's literally the best person ever, getting drawn into something way bigger than her, being influenced by a fucking monster, then being like, fuck this, making it my own, but through that keeping who she is as a person, I mean, it's a as a movie right there. It's it's but it's like pretty woman a little bit in in the way Um, Except in Pretty Woman, he's not like a fucking creep. But it just breaks my heart that she was essentially forced into this opportunity that she didn't even know she really wanted. But if you're 18 years old and some dude's like buying you expensive gifts and pretty dresses and taking you to prom and he's being so sweet to you and he's saying all of the things that you are the most, you know, self-conscious about, about yourself, and he's confirming those as okay. It really is that disguise of a really good guy. But then he's like, let me take these naked pictures of you and we can send them to Playboy because I think you have a really good shot at this. Let's make a career. This will be your jumpstart of the career in LA. And, And I don't remember reading anything that said that's what she even wanted. No. And the fact that literally he fucking forces her into this and then gets pissed when she starts doing well you know what she is the type of person that whatever opportunity or whatever scenario she's faced with she is going to be like you know what i'm going to work my ass off and make the best of it you know she's she's like my mom is struggling with paying bills i'm gonna work my ass off i'm gonna get a job i'm gonna help out she's put in this situation that she doesn't know she wants or that someone pushed her into it. And then she's like, you know what? But I'm going to work my ass off. And I'm going to achieve and do shit. And he is just such a piece of trash that he's like, what? She's achieving stuff? Oh, no. Well, so it's safe to say we both brought some really intense cases to the table today. Yeah. Yeah. Yours um, tops out at the intensity level of... Holy fuck. So I will pick the topic again next week. And it will not be Murders of the 1990s. Sorry, you guys. I know some of y'all who are loving this series are looking forward to it. But we're going to give it a little break because the 90s are another year of some real crazy shit. Yeah, the 90s are super intense. I actually know what case I'm going to do for the 90s. Oh, really? And I can't pick. I I have it and I'm like, that one's going to be a lot. Yeah, it's going to be a hot minute because I feel like the... I don't know. I feel like these episodes, when we do the decade ones, are so intense. And I think it. I think they're very intense for both listeners, but also for us. Because when we're trying to pick stuff, realizing how many there are and just how many options, it's horrifying. And how many we've already done. 
Yeah. Which just adds to the horror where it's like, oh, when you look at this from a decade perspective, holy shit, there was a lot going on in like every decade, which means there's a lot going on all the time, which is just horrifying. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, If you like this episode, head over to Apple Podcasts, uh, leave a rating, leave a review, let us know what you love. We love hearing from y'all. Yeah. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can see our beautiful faces, all the wines we feature, as well as some really random shit that we post sometimes. But if you're curious about what wines we have, honestly, that's the best place to go to to quickly find. If you're like, oh my god, I know they did this Pinot Noir one time, and I really want to try it, that you can go look at the label. It makes it so much easier to find them. It does. Yeah, like we have our, in our description of each episode, we list the wine. But I feel like wine is one of those things that, like, in picture and seeing the bottle, so much easier. It totally is. Sorry, I was drinking my wine. Um, It totally is. Mm, wow. I'm, I've gladly still got, like, a f- you know, a little over a fourth of a bottle left. So I'm going to keep uh, sipping on this because the intensity is too much. Yeah, uh, agreed. I have a full glass left and I am very thankful for it. And with that... Again, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. We love y'all. Y'all are absolutely incredible. This is Blood and Wine, signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.